The subject today, as you can see on the screen, is one that requires work and labor as well, because this doesn't come easy. And so we're looking today at Luke chapter 6, and we're in verses 27 through 36 today, and we'll get to that in a moment. Most of you in this service will remember quite well the name of Phil Donahue, because Phil had a television show that had a 29-year run on national TV that began in Dayton, Ohio in 1967 and ended in New York City in 1996. He was probably the best-known talk show host of that time. He also briefly hosted a talk show on MSNBC from 2002 to 2003. In his autobiography entitled Donahue, My Own Story, he takes a shot at God, basically for sending his son instead of himself to the cross. And here's what Donahue says. He says, if God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down and go to Calvary? Then Jesus could have said, This is my Father, in whom I am well pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow His Son to be murdered on a cross in order that He might redeem my sins? His charge is not a new one. It's an old argument. It falls short in several ways. Most seriously, it displays an ignorance of the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not comprised of three separate gods, but is one God in three persons. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And they are co-eternal and co-equal, possessing this dynamic unity of thought and purpose in which there's no disagreement. And I, 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 some people can't wrap their minds around three in one. But it's around us all the time. I could look over here at Alan. Alan is a son, he's a father, and he's a grandfather. Three in one, but he's still one Allen. All right? I, but some people just can't get their minds around that. But the decision that the Son be sent to die for our sins was a decision of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not the Father only. Jesus' pain was the Father's pain and the Spirit's pain as well. Which is what makes the opening line of John 3.16 just throb in our souls. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Father couldn't make any greater sacrifice, nor any costlier sacrifice, not even the sending of Himself. And 1 John 4 verse 8 and verse 16 says that God is love. Which is why He could send His Son to be murdered on a cross to redeem our sins. So, when Jesus came, He was the love of God incarnate. 
the love of God in the flesh. And if we want to understand God's love, then we need to look at the revolutionary love of Jesus. Now Leviticus 19.18 says that we have to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's, that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. We've just studied that on our Sunday night services. In fact, Jesus said you could fulfill the whole law if you could just love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus went even further than that. Because he not only loved his neighbors as himself, but his enemies as himself. And that's tough, but that's what our text will tell us today, beginning in verse 27 of Luke 6. He says, but I say to you who hear, are you listening? I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Wow. Love your enemies. Now, let me just say that in the fifth chapter of Matthew, in his record of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus prefaces this remark by saying, you've heard that it was said, love your enemies, or, or, uh, (laughs) yeah, You've heard that it was said to love God, but to love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That's how he prefaces it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's account. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He said, you've heard that that was said. By the way, hate your enemy is not found in the Old Testament. Not found in the Scriptures. But that's what the Jewish people had heard and what most of them believed. But Jesus says... Love your enemies. That doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, take it at face value. That that doesn't seem to make any sense. Does that kind of love come naturally? No. Why on earth would I want to love my enemies? I mean, there's, there's a reason that they're my enemies. I don't like them. I don't know if we're going to split hairs like that. You know what I'm saying. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, if I liked them, they wouldn't be my enemies now, would they? 
And if I don't even like them, I'm certainly going to have a hard time loving them. And yet, we see this type of love come from Jesus. You see it in the upper room when after washing the disciples' feet, Jesus lovingly reaches out to Judas and he's quoting Psalm 41 verse 9. In my way of thinking, as I'm trying to imagine this scene in the upper room, I think Jesus is probably looking straight at Judas as he quotes Psalm 41 9 that says, He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now John records that in John 13, verse 18. But that verse, Psalm 41, 9, is a reference to a man named Ahithophel in the Old Testament. Ahithophel was David's advisor and counselor, King David's advisor. But when Absalom tried to overthrow his father David, and David had to flee Jerusalem with those faithful and loyal to him, Ahithophel didn't go with David. He stayed behind and sided with Absalom and became Absalom's advisor. Thus the verse, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now another advisor to David was Hushai the archite. And Hushai wanted to go along with David, and David said, No, you can be more help to me if you go back to Absalom and try to thwart Ahithophel's advice. And that's exactly what he did. He went back, he was able to do that, because Ahithophel told Absalom, You need to go after David now. He'll be tired, he'll be worn out. Go and get him right now and kill him. But Hushai gave other advice to wait till the next day, assemble the entire Israelite army to go after David. And Absalom took Hushai's advice instead of Ahithophel's. And when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not taken, you know what he did? He went home and set his house in order and took his life. Committed suicide. And Jesus here, around that that table of the Last Supper, looks at Judas and quotes Psalm 41, 9. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In reference to Ahithophel's betrayal of King David and the taking of his own life that resulted. What would Judas ultimately do? Wow. I think Jesus was trying to draw Judas back. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Trying to draw Judas back. Then later, after saying the one of the twelve would betray him, he dips a morsel of bread and gave it to Judas. Now understand, in the Palestinian culture, to lift a morsel from the table, dip it in the common dish, and offer it to another person, that was a gesture of special friendship. And Jesus' gesture towards Judas was saying, in effect, Judas, I know what you're up to. I know what you're about to do, but here's my friendship. Here's my loving heart. All you have to do is take it. And Judas slammed that door shut. In that awesome event, Jesus dramatized this new law of love. 
the call to love one's enemies. There had never been anything like this. And yet this is the way that we, the church, must deal with each other as well as our enemies, which is exactly what Jesus did in the next few hours when he hung on the cross, his arms stretched wide as if to embrace the world as he died for the ungodly, as he died for sinners, as he died for his enemies. Which is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5 verse 6, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, he writes, for if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Jesus loved us, not only when we were indifferent to him, but when we were ungodly and sinners and his enemies. And so we see in our text today, at the beginning of his ministry, with the newly called 12 apostles standing before him, Jesus announces this, this new law, calling his followers to love as he loves, and to love their enemies, which is an impossible call apart from Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit. But if we're truly going to be his followers, then this command comes at us full force, and we are expected to love in this way. Now granted, this is a demand for an altogether unnatural love. This doesn't come naturally. It's the type of love Jesus is demanding, and it's agape love. The same kind of love when it says, for God so loved the world. That's agape love. When it says, God is love, that's agape love. And such a love is not motivated by whether or not the one receiving it deserves it. It's not motivated by that. It's a deliberate love. It's rooted in the will. It is a love by choice. Agape love says, I will love this person because by God's grace, I choose to love this person. That's why this kind of love can be commanded. Because it's a love based on a choice, on a decision, on a commitment. It's not a love based on feelings. Doesn't feel good to love your enemy, does it? Well, it will end up feeling good. But it's not a love based on feelings. You can't command feelings. You can command a choice. And this call to such an unnatural love is further defined by Jesus' commands in this very passage. There is first a command to unnatural deeds. As Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. So imagine someone that hates you, and then think of doing something good to them, something nice for them. That's an unnatural exercise to be sure, but it can and must be done. Then there's a command to unnatural words. Jesus commands us to bless those who curse you. That's incredible. Someone pours vile abuse on you, you respond with a heartfelt blessing. That's easier said than done for sure. 
And then Jesus commands us to pray for those who mistreat you. Unnatural prayers. And praise God, it is seemingly impossible to truly pray for someone and hate them at the same time. So this command to love our enemies is a call to unnatural deeds, unnatural words, and unnatural prayer. It's a command for supernatural love. The kind of love that God has. The love of God coming from us. So is there any hope for us? Can we possibly do this and love this way? Yes, we can. As we shall see. This type of love also calls forth from us unnatural and unconventional responses. Notice verses 29 through 31 again. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Now that's not how we want to, re to respond when we're wronged. I mean, if someone comes up and hits us, is our natural response, I'm going to hit you back harder than you hit me. That's what comes naturally, right? And if someone takes something from us, we want it back, and if we don't get it, we may think they'll live to regret that. But Jesus went far beyond what comes natural to us in his call to turn the other cheek and give to all who ask. Now, is Jesus saying that we can't defend ourselves, that we can't protect our property and keep it from being taken? No, but rather he's demanding a loving attitude that's not vengeful, but is generous and giving. Jesus is seeking followers that are willing to not seek vengeance, but are willing to give and give and give. I mean, love for things and love for possessions should never keep a Christian from giving. And all this comes down to what we call the golden rule found there in verse 31. Just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Or as Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's how you're to treat people regardless of how they treat you. And in fact, that's how we're to treat our enemies. Can we actually live that way? Yes, we can. With God's help. But even then, it's not necessarily easy. You see, Jesus says that if we love only those that love us, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. If we only do good to those that do good to us, what credit's that? Again, even sinners do that. If we lend only to those that we know are going to return, what credit is that to us? Even sinners do that. You see, there's no credit for natural love. But there's eternal credit for this new love that Jesus is demanding of us. And he says here in verse 35 and 6, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful then, just as your Father is merciful. So Jesus gives us two reasons why we should love in this way. First, our reward will be great. 
Literally, it will be much. And Jesus means what He says. He'll make good on that. And secondly, He says, you'll be sons of the Most High, which is the Hebrew way of saying we will be like the Most High. We'll be like God Himself. Therefore, to love one's enemies is to be like Christ. When we do good to our enemies, we're being like Christ. When we bless those who curse us, we are being like Christ. When we pray for those who abuse us, we are like Christ. And that likeness is our reward. But the question is, how can any of us ever live up to that ethic? How can we, in fact, love our enemies? And then love ourselves? It's impossible. No one can love his enemy by an unaided act of the will. But praise God, through new birth in Christ, we become partakers of His divine nature, according to 2 Peter 1, verse 4. Now, that does not mean that we become God or that we become Jesus, but that His divine nature is at work within us. Christ's love that reached out to poor Judas comes to us. His love for sinners becomes our love. And the key today to Christ's command to love this way is Christ in us. God in us. The Holy Spirit in us. But you have to come to Christ for that to happen. So are you willing to do good to those that hate you? Or are you going to do evil to them? If Christ is in you, you will do good to those who hate you. Are you blessing those who curse you? Those who are slandering your name all over town? Are you willing to bless them? If so... Praise God. But if Christ is not in you, you won't. Are you praying for those who mistreat you? If so, you're like Jesus. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Let me close with an illustration I found several years back. And maybe you've heard this illustration. But a family was uh, doing their family devotions. Dad, mom, and two boys. And in their devotions, they were reading from Romans 12, verse 20. that says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Well, the two boys were kind of puzzled, saying, why should you feed your enemy? And the parents were a little bit puzzled too, but the only answer that the dad could come up with was, well, we're supposed to because God says so. Well, a few days later, they learned why God said so. Seems that for several weeks, their 10-year-old, John Jr., would come home from school complaining about a classmate whose name was Bobby, who sat behind him in fifth grade, and Bobby kept jabbing John Jr. in the back when the teacher, Miss Smith, wasn't looking. And so... 
John Jr. would come home and tell his parents what was going on, and he says, one of these days, when we're out on the playground and they're not watching, I'm going to jab him back. Well, that happened day after day until finally the mother was ready to go down to school and jab Bobby herself. And at the same time, she's thinking, obviously, this boy is a brat. And besides, why isn't Miss Smith doing a better job with her kids? I'd probably better give her a jab as well. She's still fuming when her seven-year-old said, maybe Johnny should feed his enemy. <laughs> Which startled everybody because none of them were sure about this enemy business. It didn't seem that an enemy would be in the fifth grade. I mean, an enemy was someone that's way off somewhere else, they thought. But at that point, everybody looked at Dad and he ought to come up with the solution, but the only answer he could offer was the same one he had given before. Well, I guess we should, because God says so. So the mother sighed and turned to little John, John Jr., and asked, Well, do you know what Bob likes to eat? If you're going to feed him, might as well get something he likes. And the boy shouted, Jelly beans! Bob loves jelly beans! So they bought a bag of jelly beans for him to take to school the next day and decided that the next time Bob jabbed him, John Jr. would simply turn around and deposit the bag on his enemy's desk. And we'd see whether or not the enemy feeding worked. Next afternoon, the boys rushed home from school and John Jr. calls ahead and said, It worked, Mom! It worked! And their mom asked, What did Bob do? What did he say? Oh, he didn't say anything. He just was so surprised he just took the jelly beans, but he didn't jab me the rest of the day. In fact, in time, John Jr. and Bob became the best of friends, all because of a bag of jelly beans, all because if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. And so Luke says, love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I should say Jesus says, not Luke. Luke records it. But one last thought. The way God showed love to us was that same way. We were his enemies. And John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, including his enemies, that he gave. Loving our enemies involves giving them something, something that they need, something they'd like to have, and God gave us who were his enemies, his son. So what will you give to your enemy? Which kind of brings me to some homework I want to give you. An assignment. I don't know who your enemies are. You do. Maybe you think you don't have any, which that's fine. But I would imagine that there's someone somewhere that just rubs you the wrong way. And someone that you don't necessarily enjoy being around. Your assignment is in the next 30 days, do something good to them. Do something good for them or to at least bless them or pray for them 
Love them the way God loved you. That's it. That's your assignment. Easy? Does it come naturally? No. But if God is in you, if Christ is in you, if the Spirit is in you, it's something we must do. Love your enemies. Let's stand.